Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. In episode six, Elise and I are joined by a very special guest, lifelong Trekkie and historian Dason Oka. We begin a fascinating discussion about the historical context from which Star Trek emerged and how the American national myth permeates the United Federation of Planets. Yeah, so let me just start off by saying what an absolute amazing moment this is for me to have two of my best friends that I made through Star Trek sitting here at this point in time. I'm just overwhelmed right now. Star Trek means a lot of different things to me, but one of the biggest things that Star Trek... uh, Mike's just (laughs) overcome with emotion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so like... Yeah, Star Trek is so many different things, but I don't, I don't know who I'd be without Star Trek, but also, like, who the, the people in my life would be. You know, like, Star Trek has just been such a great way for me to, to meet people and, and form really lasting, really amazing friendships throughout my entire life, from the first day of kindergarten all the way up through my last few years of graduate school. So, Jason, I don't know if you have any memory of the first time we met, but in my mind, and it may have been altered by, you know, many years of, of thinking about it, but in my mind, the, the way this scene plays out is it's the first day of kindergarten, and I don't know anybody in class, just like nobody knows anybody in class, and I go around asking people whether or not they like Star Trek because it was something that I just discovered right before I entered kindergarten and I decided for some reason that I liked it. And you said, yes, I like Star Trek. And that was that. Was that. And we've been friends ever since the first day of kindergarten. Yeah, I, I think that was, that was a story, the narrative I've also heard too. I've also heard um, we we're in the same kindergarten class and we just looked at each other and we sat next to each other. <laughs> oh, it was love I, at first I, sight. I, I per- yes, I prefer <laughs> love, love and Star Trek at first sight. So, no, it was like love at first sight. I think that's, that's um, yeah, that's actually what my mom told me, like how it happened. Um, you know, memory, I think memory, like it's, it suits what we kind of want and need to hear. So I, but I, I, I think I can believe that Star Trek story too because I, I do remember being in kindergarten just with you, Michael, um, just like talking about Star Trek and like I think Voyager was like just in its second or third, I think first seasons or something like that. And it was like a really cool thing and I, I remember that very vividly, you know, during my elementary school years and like bonding with you over that. So I think um, like you said, a Star Trek, I half of it is like it's, it's the friends, it's the fans really. And I think um, kind of the relationships formed through this art form, this way of like looking at history and humanity, which we'll discuss in this podcast. It's like, it's what is really beautiful about it and the people who are surrounding it in this journey. Well, speaking of history and and memory, Mm -hmm. you are a student of history. Mm -hmm. You are a historian. You are an educator as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, so I got my master's degree from San Francisco State University College of Ethnic Studies. It's an interdisciplinary program that at its core, it's about how kind of an education that is intended for kind of having a social justice name and social justice curriculum uh, agenda and um, vision and mission 
That said, we are also an academic program and we kind of draw in theories and methods and practices from various disciplines, history, sociology. So for me, uh, I am a master's degree in ethnic studies, specifically Asian American studies, but my core disciplinary kind of focus is on history. So I draw mostly from oral histories or archival research and looking at the past and understanding how the past is constructed to kind of uh, lead insight into the human condition. That's basically what history is about. Well, without further ado, let's dive into the strange new world of history. <laughs> history. Scientists. Caltech doesn't really have much of that. Can I introduce something first before we start? Uh, we uh, sure. The end? Okay, sure. Okay, so I mean, it's, it's a very small token of my appreciation. And I'm glad that I had two, but... I made these buttons. Homemade <laughs> buttons. Oh my gosh, they're homemade okay. yes. com badges. That's yeah. so crazy. Oh, those, you've got the Voyager, yeah, Voyager. The Voyager Next Gen. This is really amazing. That's yeah. super yeah. cute. Um, I'm going to put it on right now, actually, yeah. so I feel like I'm in command. This is so awesome. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you, Jason. totally. And yeah. it's, it's great. I, it's a fun time, and I, I, if I had more time, I would totally... I'm, I'm, I'm trying, trying to, to tap, I know, I'm trying like, trying to tap to, it to like, beam, beam up. Yeah, come on. Mike to Enterprise. Enterprise, do yeah, you yeah. Voyager. <laughs> this, is, this is great. Yeah, um, and it's great. I, I made the Borg insignia symbol, too, and the Bajoran symbol. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's just, like, really funny. I remember you being obsessed with Bajorans. I, the Bajorans, yeah, the Vulcans, they're great. Man. That was, that was the mine. Vulcans, yeah. <laughs> We've got this article that Dyson sent us. It's called Space, the Final Frontier. American nationalism and mid-20th century visions of the future. And it's authored by Professor, I'm going to butcher this name, Su Ming Tio. Is that how we do pronounce, sure. pronounce that? I'm not sure, but yeah. yeah. Professor Tio, yeah, I think Professor Tio is um, a professor in Australia and does also history, and but more specifically a history of science fiction and um, memory and does the politics of memory in regards to American science fiction. Yeah, I, I googled her right before coming mm -hmm. and so she's a uh, associate professor of English at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia and she's written numerous journal articles and books including novels. Jason, one of the most important things that I remember learning from my humanities classes mm -hmm. in college is that whenever you read a document, no matter what document it is, whether it's a journal article, mm -hmm. a book, or the Declaration of Independence, you should always ask about the context in which it was yeah. written, who was the author, why were they writing it, and who right. was the intended audience. Yeah. Do we know any of those details for this? For article? this uh, writing, you know, um, I don't know much about this author or like why, but um, it was written in the Journal of American Studies for New Zealand, Australia. and. Um, Historically, what American studies was, it was, it's, it was a discipline that was basically invented by kind of American um, kind of diplomatic corps and like foreign services to kind of like brand America in uh, the post-World War II era. So kind of this, it was this uh, brand America campaign through academia and through the disciplines. So, but what happened in the 1970s and 80s, it was a lot of these academics infiltrated American studies and then brought in a lot of critical ideas mm -hmm. from... Marxism and like postmodernism and changed American studies into something that was very, very uh, progressive, used a lot of critical theories, Marxism, postmodernism, and, and changed American studies into what is now a very um, progressive discipline. So this article suggests that Star Trek, as well as American science fiction in general, 
stems from and incorporates what is called the American national myth, which propagates the idea that Americans as a chosen people, in quotes, have a unique mission to defend and disseminate liberty and democracy throughout mm -hmm. the world. And this is echoed later on in the paper, uh, talking about how uh, Manifest Destiny, episode after episode of Star Trek, became a reflection of America's legendary struggle to capture and colonize the West. Mm -hmm. So I want you to, first of all, explain, you know, when historians and linguists and social scientists talk about myth, mm -hmm. It's a very specific. It's not idea. Thor. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not. Yeah, it's not like the Greek myths. It's not a story or a legend, right? It's something very specific. So, what is a myth? So, myths. When in this context, we can talk about nation states having myths. Okay. So, nation states having like this origin story about how they were formed, who belongs in the nation state, you know, what are the characteristics and the properties of each specific nation state, and so, for example. The United States has a national myth, and our national myth is that we, the colonists, came together and struggled against uh, the British for freedom and for proper representation, for democracy, for individual rights and liberties. Um, and we were kind of embodying the Enlightenment kind of ideals against this oppressive monarchist, anti-market, anti-free trade kingdom, you know, empire uh, that was the British. And so that was the national myth. You know? And so national myths, what they do is they, they don't just belong in the past, but they serve this kind of ongoing purpose that we have in the present. It ties people together. It has something that we have like a common past through mythology, through our national myths. Because like what makes us in California, in Southern California, tie to people in Alaska, in New York, or in other colonies like Puerto Rico or Hawaii? It's that, Okay, we are in like very far off distant lands. Um, our cultures, languages might be different. Our birthplaces are might be different, but we believe in the American myth, which is tied to individual liberties, freedom, and democracy. So, so a myth, a myth, sort of gives people a common meaning, something that you buy into to be a part of a group. Yes, yes, it's it's a cohesive, it's a cohesion tool, really. It's like brings people together. Yeah. So it is a bit like like a myth-myth in that it is like an origin story and it kind of explains why the nation is what it is and what it should be and what properties exactly, it has yeah. and why it's special, why it's worth preserving. Yeah, exactly. So that's why you see every politician in like elections and presidential elections talking about America, you know, yeah. America, the greatest country in the world, um, our founding fathers, and the founding fathers are also a part yeah, of that. Yeah, they're, they're like our pantheon. Yeah. Yes, they're gods. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they are gods. Yeah, and I think they're treated that way. Um, and, you know, I think is the U.S. doesn't just have this, like, I think nation states all over the world. You have to have one, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's Think of it, um, if you have a national curriculum, if you have a national education program, public education is one of these places where national myths are disseminated. You ha you're going to have this... Did you have to say the Pledge of Allegiance in school? Yeah. Or oh, yeah. 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 And, and when you think about it, it's it's something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, nation states have this, all nation states, yeah. absolutely. So part of the American myth is this mission to defend and disseminate liberty and democracy throughout the world. Mm -hmm. Drawing a parallel to Star Trek, mm -hmm. would you say that the Federation sort of occupies that same kind of role in Star Trek, sort of mm -hmm. this expansionist uh, nation mm -hmm. in space trying to unite and spread its ideals throughout the galaxy. Is the Federation Space America? Is, is it Space America? I think, yes, it is. Um, and putting Star Trek within the context of the Cold War, we can think of it, and you know, also thinking about who Gene Roddenberry was, 
we can think of Star Trek as this kind of liberal America. What Gene Roddenberry thought that was the problems with America during the Cold War, and he addressed it through critiques of like intervention and critiques of war. So for him, Star Trek was about a critique of imperialism and war, and kind of the oppressions that was happening during the Cold War. But at the same time, it, kind of, it also reinforced. Yeah, it draws on that kind of like myth of kind of the American, almost like a cowboy. Like, yes, like yes. Kirk is very much. You could put him in cowboy boots and a hat and throw him out into a western, and his personality would fit just fine. Yeah, absolutely, exactly. So, like that's the structure is the same. You know, the structure of Star Trek fits in with with the, with the western mythology, which is the mythology of America, the nation state, expanding outwards into the west. So, Star Trek, you know, it's it's the west, is the expansion of the into the American West, just into the American space. But at the same time, Roddenberry, even though he was very critical of what was happening at the time, still kind of recentered America. Like he still think that, thought that America could be redeemed. At its core, it was still good, and that's very important. At its core, it was still good, and the United Federation of Planets was that core. Was that really what America should be, or what America originally is? That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, it really is. I mean, they're speaking Federation Standard English. They're not speaking Federation Standard <laughs> Chinese or Spanish, right? It's so true. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a prediction that America will like reach its kind of promised destiny right. according to its myth that you were talking right. about. Yeah. And that right. it, like the best would be this, or like this is what we're supposed to be, Yeah. almost. Right. And so that's interesting because who are the enemies of the Federation? It's like Klingons. Klingons, Romulans are defaulted. And then that kind of translates to like the Soviet or the Chinese. Yeah. So in this article, I detected three major historical influences on American science fiction and Star Trek. First of all was the Enlightenment. You mm. mentioned that. Um, and then there was the Puritan Exodus and then the Cold War. And I was wondering if you could just, for those listeners who haven't really delved into each of these three things, could you just give a brief explanation of what the Enlightenment okay. is? What, yeah. Okay, yeah. So the Enlightenment was this political and philosophical movement that started in Europe, Western Europe, specifically from around like the 1400s, that uh, was in response to what Enlightenment thinkers saw as the backwardness of like feudal thought or like Catholicism or irrationality. And so the Enlightenment saw that the world could be understood through reason, through the scientific method, and that there were these certain ways that we could view the world and a certain kind of morality from that. And some of these moralities that came from the Enlightenment was uh, the rule of law or individual liberty. And that and that indiv individual liberty was also a challenge against the monarchic order, where as in individual liberty and reason, those were kind of like the, this, the basis for how society should be organized, how the rule of law should be organized, not the kings or the monarchs. And that it was God that gave humanity or that, that placed reason and individual liberty as the, the, the crux of how society should be uh, managed instead of like the wills of the king or the, the monarchy. So that's, that's the, uh, the Enlightenment. And it, it was also at the, at the same time when uh, Europe, Western Europe was really entrenching and like establishing colonies around the world. So part of the, of the way of upholding Enlightenment was to kind of outsource or like kind of displace the unenlightened, the barbaric to the other. And this bringing is, the torch of civilization into the exactly, darkness beyond, exactly. yeah. One aspect of Enlightenment philosophy was that you had um, the, the bearers of the torch, the light of reason and individual liberty being Western Europe, and then bringing out the darkness of the world. And the darkness of the world representing like totalitarianism, 
or tribalism or kind of backwardness, irrationality, superstition. And it was through reason and these inalienable like liberties and human, not human rights, I'm sorry, individual rights that would kind of dispel that away. And that humanity will kind of make this march towards progress. Why do you say not human rights? Oh, human rights, I think, um, um, because the reason why I ask is because there's this great line from mm. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, mm. where they're inviting the Klingon diplomats over for dinner on the, mm. on the Starship Enterprise. And then mm. somebody, I forget who, I, probably McCoy, says something about human rights and we believe in spreading human rights. And then mm. the Klingon diplomat says, listen to yourself, human rights. Mm. It's already inherently racist. Mm. I, I think, well, when I said not human rights, what the human rights I'm thinking of like came when the UN, United Nations was established and it established rights for like all humanity. Individual rights, I think, was more starting the domain of the Enlightenment era. And it was basically the Enlightenment era said that it was the individual who was the, the, the fundamental unit of society. The individual will, the individual desires was kind of utmost and central to how society was organized. So the individual can do anything they want. They had free speech, they had market access, and they were able to do free trade with anyone. So I think human rights came a little bit after. This is, I think, my understanding kind of, um, is yeah. Is it really just like different words to describe? Like, I mean, you could call an individual right a human right, but really it means it's referring to two different kind of movements and sets of ideas. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. It, human rights semantics. did come... Yeah, the language of human rights did come later. And I think human rights is like kind of an offspring of like individual rights and individual liberties. It, it, it does follow the enlightenment tradition of kind of uh, liberty and rights. So you mentioned individuality, individual mm. liberties. Mm. Um, so that draws upon another uh, quotation that I've pulled from this paper, where it says, American science fiction's incurable optimism, its stubborn adherence to small town virtues, and its fear of compulsory conformity. And the fear of compulsory conformity really stuck out to me because this is alternatively stated as admiration of individuality. And the Star Trek, yeah, the Star Trek <laughs> example of this fear of compulsory conformity is the Borg. The Borg. Right, where you, you get assimilated into this hive mind, you become a drone, you have mm -hmm. no personality, you have no free will, you're just like every other drone. Can you talk about the Borg a little bit? The Borg, yeah. So the Borg, there is this one scholar, and you know, forgive me, I, I don't remember his name, but he, he wrote in a British, this, this British uh, press about how the Borg kind of represents the West's fear of Japan. And this was written in the 90s. So when Japan's um, technological perfection and its progress kind of represented the Borg and its, uh, its so-called collectivist attitudes represented the Borg. For, for this scholar, um, he analyzed the Borg as the collectivist and anti-individualist opposite of, of individualism and humanity represented through the Federation, through the Voyager crew. And so, you know, we can see this within the historical context in the 90s being a time when Japan's economy and its politics was was growing, and there was this, and some intellectuals were thinking that there was this like potential conflict with Japan. And so, you know, I think culture is sometimes like a manifestation of what's going on in the larger picture, the larger cultural, political order and situation in the world. And so, the Borg represents for for this scholar, the Japanese, in which Voyager and the next generation was this kind of 
the, the frontier against this collectivist menace. Like a bastion of individuality, like yeah. American individualism. Yeah. yeah, and it makes sense, um, I think, when he said that Seven of Nine is kind of a representation of what an individual, of the, uh, it represents the redemption of a Borg individual from this collectivist society back into their, their humanity, which is individuality, which is um, feelings and own desires. That Seven, like you can see throughout the Voyager series that she supposedly learns as she is rehabilitated and redeemed by the Voyager crew. Very interesting. What about that Puritan exodus? Puritan exodus is the sense of having a mission. That if we, if we think about what the Puritans were, the, the Puritans, they, their philosophy, they were very critical of the religious order at the time. And they had a very a set agenda of like resisting both the Catholic Church and the Church of England. And so what they saw was like, okay, there's this new world, the Americas, the colonies, where we can bring our ideas and kind of implement it to this, like what they thought was a barren land. And then kind of, for them, develop a modern and like new Europe within America that have had these Puritan ideas and what they thought was like their version of Enlightenment ideas. So the Puritan legacy is the sense of expansion and progress and spreading the message, spreading the gospel of Enlightenment and reason and individual liberty. It's interesting because as Star Trek matured, like as seasons go on, it seems to fall back to the exploration trope more than in the original series. It really does feel like they're colonizing and mm -hmm. expanding and trying. They're they're changing every world they they leave mm -hmm. behind. Like they literally have a planet that they go in and intervene, and then all of a sudden they've got a new religion at the end. Mm -hmm. and, but as as you move forward, I think kind of the awareness in the media, like in our media and our like media makers, kind of came around to that not being super popular idea with all the criticisms of explorate with like of the expansionist idea. So it fell back more on a like we just want to go see what's out there. Like mm. the, the prime directive became more followed mm. as time goes on, perhaps because people were more critical of that sort of like seeing a barren land where there are still right. people. Right. Yeah, so I think we can see that like in TNG and Voyager, you know, maybe they evolved more from like the original series where it was uh, Picard and Janeway were very much careful about not, not interfering in the, the development of these, of any new civilizations they come across and even faced with this moral dilemma of like leaving things worse than they found and having to deal with that. I think um, that, that could be in a sense like a more sophisticated or kind of like a, a, a response to the, the Puritan exodus that the original series might have represented. But at the same time, even though TNG and Voyager also had more like kind of nuanced and critical approaches to the more obvious expansionism that maybe the, the original series represented, TNG and Voyager also kind of reinforced, again, the notions of the superiority of individual liberty, yeah, of absolutely. rationality. And we see that in multiple episodes of Voyager and TNG. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just as an example for what Elise was bringing up about the original series going and completely changing a planet after uh, you know they mm -hmm. landed and, and then they left and the planet was completely new, I was watching, it was July 4th recently, mm -hmm. right? So I had to watch the most patriotic original series episode there was. It's called The Omega Glory. Mm -hmm. And Captain Kirk lands on a planet. He sees a backward society that has basically gone through some kind of, I think it was a bio, chemical weapon holocaust basically mm. and uh, he eventually at the very end of the episode spouts the 
preamble to the U.S. Constitution to these people. He's just like, he says, among my people, we carry many such words as this from many lands, from many worlds. Many are as equally good and well-respected, but wherever we have gone, there are no words which have ever said this thing of importance in quite this way. Look at these three words written larger than all others and with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. And then he goes on. Is this the episode where he actually has them waving American flags by the end? There is, yep. There's an American flag in the mm. in the room. It's just very American-centric. Right. I mean, Kirk's from Iowa. He is from Iowa. <laughs> yeah. The weird he's, thing about... He's the classic, like, farm boy, good old American guy yeah. fantasy of an astronaut. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. The original series, and I think... And in Gene Roddenberry was that America, it was critiquing of like it was a very obvious critique of what America was doing at the time, but at its core, it, it didn't feel that America was uh, at its core incorrect. It actually felt that America at its core was virtuous, and it just needed to be. We just need to be reminded of that. We're virtue. a flawed hero. Yeah, yeah we're, we're we're still a hero. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And so America is going to lead the way to a united Earth, which kind of drew upon what the reality of the time, which was the League of Nations formed. It collapsed, but then the United Nations formed out of the ashes of that. And uh, this utopian future I learned from this essay was actually not a very unique to Star Trek thing. It was actually abundant in American science fiction mm-hmm. of the time. But then the atomic bomb sort of happened in the Cold War and the scare. And there was a birth in British science fiction where a lot of British science fiction became very dystopian and had very like Armageddon kind of super tragic endings to humanity. Whereas the American science fiction had those struggles, there were nuclear holocausts, etc., but humanity survived. Right? And this sort of touches upon the those ideals that the pureness of virtue will overcome eventually, mm-hmm. that, that kind of theme. And this echoes in Star Trek as well. As we discussed in the last episode, we had the eugenics wars in the Star Trek timeline. There was World War Three, And then there was World War Three that we had to suffer through. And then finally, Zephram Cochran's first warp flight ship mm-hmm. is called the Phoenix, which I think is very symbolic of this, you know, it's an animal that kind of emerges from the ashes right. you know right. it's it, it is built literally out of a world war three nuclear missile and it ushers in a new prosperous era for humanity i don't know if you guys have any comments on on that well i think like which is a virtue will overcome kind of struggle and adversary i think that's this very much not just a star trek trope but like trope it, it's like, fantasy it's a myth but yeah i think <laughs> Virtue, which ties to like our values. Yeah, like values in a different culture, virtue could have been the communi- like communitarian ideal instead. Mm-hmm. Like, had this been a, like a different country, it produced something like Star Trek. Maybe like some individual sacrificing something of their own to further the greater good would have been the crux instead of a really exceptional guy building a really exceptional ship. Right, right. So, I think I think one other thing about I think even just World War Three, how Star Trek described it was that. There were many factions of the world that were kind of fighting each other. That kind of statement also overlooks that maybe the wor- the way the world's structured now is not factions fighting each other, but one or two superpowers fighting against the rest of the world. So it, it takes imperialism out of the understanding of how the world works. So if we think of Earth politics as just simply tribes not getting along with each other, 
it takes out the fact that there's actually one or two bullies in this world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think this appears in, in literature, science fiction, and just today, the way we think about nation states and the world. We think that the United Nations and the League of Nations will reconcile differences. And by reconciling differences, we get world peace. But then that kind of is a very different worldview than one that critics say, no, the worldview is actually one or two bullies kind of forcing the rest of the nation. And of course, yeah, the well, States. If, you look at, if you look at a lot of the international agreements on climate and stuff, really, like, it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter if a lot of small countries do yeah. something, like, together, because if the superpowers aren't on board, it doesn't mean anything for anyone. Like, these, these things that need everybody's in, like, one or two powers can really shift the yes, balance. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah, the, the whole factions thing, especially when you, when you've, the way Star Trek describes the eugenics war, like like one or two augments, one or two figureheads, Napoleons at the head of a faction, and they're all butting their factions up against each other. It's not two figureheads playing chess with everyone else. It's everybody, it's almost like a free-for-all, like a um, Hobbesian dystopia versus mm -hmm. like really a chess game between two people. Yeah, yeah. And then that's just like multiple players fighting each other. You know, we can say, oh, humanity is like flawed or like morally wrong and like there's something wrong with humanity. When it's not all of humanity, it's certain parts of humanity that's trying to control the rest of humanity. So it's this, um, when, when people say, oh, humanity is so evil, it's like it's, it's corrupt and it's, it's wrong. Like which humanity are we talking about? We have to distinguish oh, humanity, maybe within humanity there are oppressors and the oppressed. And that just because, you know, maybe we are so caught up on the wrongs of the oppressors, we can't project, we can't just like label the rest of humanities as, as morally wrong as the oppressors are. So just that's like a, a more of a side note. But but it was a way that Star Trek kind of romanticized humanity in the whole, and America. It, avoid, it avoids the having to deal with the sticky business of America as a global superpower yeah. that has fingers in all of the pies. Yeah, yeah. So, right, we are exactly. the biggest bully. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. On this world. <laughs> and and you know, when we... Yeah, and when we say, oh, humanity sucks, it's like, no, it, it doesn't just suck because it was America and other one or two superpowers that are screwing everything over. Maybe actually a majority of humanity might be actually decent. But if there's so much power concentrated in one or two places, mm. all it takes is one or two people yeah. to really change the yep. course of everything. Yeah, and then, and then we internalize the viewpoint of that one or two individuals or clusters and think that humanity and the world is that when there's actually the rest of humanity that is not represented through the just That's kind of interesting people. in the Star Trek context too mm -hmm. because we've never had a series about civilians. Like we've only mm -hmm. ever seen Starfleet. Mm -hmm. So what what are the like protein farmers on random backwards planets doing in the Federation? Yeah. Like are they like is it something like the US where you've got pockets of kind of this liberal thought and then there's lots of like more sparsely populated area that has a completely different kind of set of priorities and needs yeah. and ambitions like what does federation politics look like we never see anything except exactly. for the the torchbearers exactly and I, this is how we think of history and history memory world geopolitics and politics being played out by nation states at the top for example history we think history of the world in terms of nation states but what about the workers the laborers um, they're often marginalized forgotten. people women yeah. and so like all of the, all of these marginal players are not are not heard or not are not written down in the narrative in, in history in memory so because they're not and when we read history and think that that what we read is the history of humanity when it's actually the history of the people who had the privilege of writing down history which is usually nation states the elites the intellectuals who are all tied into the nation state 
we, what we're reading is not the history of humanity, but the history of the elite, the history of the nation states. Like imagine it, imagine the original series, but written like as a series that's just basically those three miners on that horrible planet from those women, <laughs> uh -huh, and they uh -huh. were just like watching Starfleet telecasts, and it was just them like complaining to each other about why am I not getting my stuff from the Federation? Like I'm out here mining their dilithium. Yeah. Like, um, I, I really right. love the character of Jake Sisko mm -hmm. because he's the son of a Starfleet captain and he tries to go through the education system and is expected by everybody to go into Starfleet, but he decides to be a journalist instead. And I would really love to read some of Jake Sisko's writings mm. about the Dominion War. What does it look like from the point of view of a civilian journalist? Yeah, what, does, what does space war even look like for the people on the planets mm. involved? I, I don't think we ever see it, really. Mm. We see a few deaths and we see Starfleet responding, but we don't see yeah. like local thought or anything like that. It is, it is really mm. crazy to think that there's an entire federation like I've never even thought about before now. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, yeah, there's... Who are the marginalized who, Yeah, people? who is the federation marginalizing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... At the dawn of the Federation, we do see some of that, though, like different alien delegations worrying about, like, it's just going to be Earth first. I mean, we have Federation Standard English, not Federation Standard Vulcan, not Federation Standard Denobulin. We have Federation Standard English. Like, Earth is undoubtedly at the center of it all. And even when you have an alien, like, head of the Federation, they are stationed on Earth in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. so, so in a lot of ways, I guess it, it really is sort of colonial. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of opt-in, but it's it's. I mean, at least it's at least states um, with with kind of a centralized power in humanity. Like Starfleet is overwhelmingly human. Mm -hmm. Like uh, it's it's almost reminiscent of like the British Navy like protecting American trading interests. And like a sure Vulcan could opt out of the Federation, but then they'd be left completely defenseless without human Starfleet ships defending all of their spaceports. Yeah. It almost seems exploitative now. And <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting, like, we're asking these questions, and then the Federation bills itself as this, like, post-nation state, post-scarcity, post-war kind post of society, post-money post society, post-capitalist society, but it's post-capitalist society, but then the government structure is still there. It's, it's informed still, by our government structures, which yeah. were made to enable capitalism. Exactly, exactly. So it's just like, right, like, you know, and this touches on Marxist theory that, you know, the state is a reflection of capitalist demand and capitalist needs. But then we have the same kind of state structure in like a they society. They have a president, right? Mm -hmm, they yeah. have a president. Yeah. It's a, yeah, interesting. Like Federation, like it has that, but it's That's supposed to be That's wild to think of it from like a more social standpoint. Because most of the time growing up, I was just like, oh my gosh, is warp drive like possible? Are aliens mm -hmm. real? Like I was never asking any of the social questions. Mm -hmm. I just took it pat. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe because, I mean, in school, that's what I got. Like the American myth, the... Uh, mm -hmm. Like manifest destiny, and of course, I mean, I'm from the generation that got it very critically lensed. Like, I, I went to an international school, and like all of it, like some of the kids in my class were even complaining about how critical it was. But mm. like, I just took it all, Pat, just did never even question it. And now I'm just like, are there like Star Trek fiction books out there about like people who don't have it so great in the Federation? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are we not seeing? What yeah. what's happening in those subspace frequencies that we don't get to listen to? To be continued next time on Strange New Worlds. Thanks for joining us, and see you out there.